appendicitis. A couple of hours later, she was handed me. Hello, Mum. Fred arrived home from work to be told his wife had been taken to hospital. He arrived at the hospital to be told he had a baby girl. He kept telling them they'd muddled him up with somebody else. Hello, Dad. Dad cycled off to his parents' house to tell them of my arrival, but the news flew well ahead of him. By the time he reached my grand's house, she'd already been told by the woman in the fish shop. Meanwhile, back at the hospital, Mama decided to keep me. The doctors had suggested, considering her age and state of shock, she might want to have me adopted. Mum said no, so I stayed with this couple I'd only just met. Despite arriving 17 years after their wedding, I was also premature and weighed just over four pounds. Mum had been prescribed Guinness Stout by a doctor when she was 18 for anemia, and she'd never seen any reason to stop drinking one or two bottles a day. After I was born, the doctors didn't see any reason for her to stop drinking it either. So there we were, Mum and me, both with our bottles, spending our first Christmas together in hospital, visited regularly by Dad. Later we were joined by my Uncle Joe, who for some reason had fallen down a 30-foot hole. So it was a real family Christmas. After we came out of hospital, Dad had to go in for an operation on his ears, presumably because he still couldn't believe them. I'm convinced that both my parents lived the rest of their lives in a state of shock. In fact, they never told me where I came from. They just kept asking me. When my mum went back to her cleaning job at the pub, I used to go along as well for the ride. Propped up in my pushchair, I'd stare at the red plastic bucket next to me and wonder if I was a twin. My constant companion was Andy, a black and white panda stuffed with sawdust. Andy would occasionally take it upon himself to leap out of the pushchair when I was snoozing. He'd have to be brought home by somebody who'd found him lying face down in a gutter and knew where he lived. As a punishment, he'd be rubbed harshly with a flannel and hung on the washing line by his ears. To me, a nursery was not a playground of paddling pools and building bricks, but a vast land of greenhouses bursting with hot, sweaty leaves and cucumbers. My father, grandfather and ancestors on both sides were agricultural labourers. Old family photos show men in flat caps and corduroy trousers digging the fields and women in long dresses packing boxes of tomatoes at trestle tables. Dressed in his old threadbare jumper and worn-out trousers held up round the waist with a necktie, Dad worked all hours, every day, including Christmas morning, with Saturday and Sunday afternoons off. Dad finally gave up with the pushbike and bought a moped. As a kid, still tucked up in bed, I'd hear him go out the front door about half past six each morning. I'd hear the gate scrape on the concrete path and then the desperate whirring of pedals as he tried to get his moped started. When I was nine, my dad bought a more trusty Honda 50. This bike had two seats, so on Sunday afternoons he'd take me out for a ride, which usually ended up at the nursery. I loved wandering around the ramshackle greenhouses, an Amazon jungle of hot, damp, musty leaves. The heat and smell would become so overpowering I'd have to run outside to take a deep breath of cool, fresh air. The place was a menagerie. Chickens would roam freely, ignored by the feral cats running around the packing sheds, always followed by a line of kittens. Before we left, my dad would take me next door to see the pig farm and the boxing goat. Towards Christmas, the cucumbers would be replaced by huge blooms of white, red, gold and bronze chrysanthemums and Dad would have to go back up the nursery at night to check on the heating. Occasionally I was allowed to go too, and as I watched him lift the lever on the huge metal door, there would be a roar of the furnace. 
standing there in the glow of the fire, I used to think he looked like Casey Jones stoking up the train engine. I'd never seen so many other kids to play with at one time as on my first day at school. When my mum came to take me home for lunch, I couldn't be found. The teachers were put on alert, and I was eventually discovered in the canteen tucking into the rice pudding. That decision, made so early in life, subjected me to school dinners for the next 13 years. At school there were some girls who looked trendy by the age of seven and looked like they were heading towards the right overall shape. I was tall but slightly podgy, with bobbed hair scooped up and clipped into a hair slide. I wore clothes that I would, no doubt, at some point grow into. My overall image was not about to be improved. In the class, the teacher would write everything up on the board and we'd copy it down into our exercise books. Please, miss, I can't see the board. And this teacher asked, well, do you need glasses? How was I to know? I just thought the world was blurry. An appointment was made for me at the eye clinic in a road rather sadistically named Blind Man's Lane and I got my first pair of pastel pink national health glasses. At last I could see Cliff Richard. There he was on the wall in the old school football team photo the headmaster was always showing us. I don't know what sort of parties Cliff went to in the early 60s, but at my birthday parties there'd be only girls. The highlight of my party was a trip to the toilet. All the other kids at school had a boring bathroom inside the house. We had no bathroom, and our toilet was right down the bottom of the garden, next to an old corrugated iron air raid shelter. My friends would come in, take off their coats, give me a present, and pick at a fish paste sandwich, then after a well-mannered loiter would start to squeal. I want to go to the toilet! My birthday party would be on a cold, dark December afternoon. Going to the toilet meant a complete ritual. Mum would have to help the girls put their coats and wellingtons back on, and they'd all queue up outside the back door. One by one, she'd take them down to the bottom of the garden with a torch, like an usherette. When she realised what a hit this was, she had the idea to save some fireworks from Guy Fawkes' night. So then we walked down the garden path with a sparkler. Each girl would warily close the toilet door behind her as my mum waited outside. The others, left by the back door, after a dignified delay would start screaming, Spider! There's a spider! and try to make the girl run out before she'd finished. When I was eight, the council offered people in our street a grant to have a new kitchen and bathroom built. Seeing this was the way of the future, my mum and dad and three other neighbours went ahead. This meant months of chaos at home, with bricks, cement, pipes and all the rest of a building site going through our house. The builders said it was easier to have one house that everything went through, and since my mum had been the only one to make them a cup of tea, they decided on ours. At home, our meals were breakfast, dinner and tea. If I'd woken from a coma, I'd be able to tell what day it was from what we were having for tea. Monday meant a fry-up. Tuesday, sausages. Wednesday, lamb chops. Thursday, stew with dumplings in winter, or steak and kidney pie in summer, and Friday, fish and chips. Saturday meant haddock. Sunday dinner was roast beef with all the trimmings. Ah, unless it was a family birthday, in which case we'd have chicken. Since there was only mum, dad and me, this meant we had chicken three times a year. Sunday tea time was a salad with tin fruit cocktail and carnation milk for afters. Now this routine did have its uses. 
My dad came home one evening covered in blood because he'd driven his Honda 50 down a hole in the road, left irresponsibly by the gas board. Now, although I don't know how old I was, I can pinpoint it as a Thursday in winter because we were having stew. Our house was like a furniture warehouse at the best of times. There was no hallway, so the front door led straight into the front room, which we called the front room. In here was a settee, two armchairs, and a display cabinet of brass jugs that my mum had won for athletics at school. Books never figured highly in our house. I had a few old books with no pictures in that I used to scribble over, and my parents had the old Hoban book of boxing that my dad had got free with his tobacco wrappers. Shelves weren't for books. They were for ornaments, and we never went short of a china crinoline lady holding an umbrella in our house. My mum used to add her own embellishments. The brown pottery poodle wore a pair of orange plastic glasses from a Christmas cracker, and the baby sham Bambi wore a maroon and white spotted bow tie. Under no account was the front room to be used. The idea was to open the front door and walk through this room as quickly as possible, being careful not to disturb anything. The back room, the same size as the front room, had a wooden sideboard, a dining room table and four chairs, a television, a settee and two armchairs. Every bit of this room had to be edged around sideways. Now we were having the building work done, all this furniture had to be moved upstairs. The kitchen got demolished and the water tap was then in the middle of a muddy trench. Mum kept saying it was like the blitz. Mum, Dad and me would put on our night clothes, get into their big old wooden double bed and watch the big old wooden telly perched on the dressing table. When it came to bedtime, I would get out of this bed, walk across the landing, climb over the kitchen cupboards, 